everyone, it's Ali and Colin Gare from Outlaw Bows. Hey guys, hope you're all well. We are back for episode two. We recorded episode one about a fortnight ago. Um, you can find Colin on Facebook if you search Outlaw Bows mm-hmm. and Instagram on Outlaw Bows, Outlaw underscore Bows. Yeah, that's right. Yep. And if you search Outlaw Bows on YouTube as well. Mm-hmm. Um, today we were going to talk about long bows. Yep, definitely. When I first met you, you only made long bows. You didn't make any yep. of the other stuff that you make now. Yeah, that's right. Why did you get into making just the long bow? Um, when I started out, the longbow was the easiest bow to start with, so I honed my skills in tillering bows and, and making bows through making longbows just to learn the process and learn how to be able to see the shapes that I needed to see so that I could get bows to finish product. And then from there, I've always had an interest in uh, the medieval period, so the Hundred Years' War, sort of from Hastings onwards. Uh, through into the 1500s and all that time period and the history there with the bows and what they were used for was always really fascinating so I've always been interested in that and then so my what I make sort of merged that way and I got into making English long bows a lot and I started to make a lot of bows for the reenactors and the reenactment scene here in Australia and that was really really good I enjoyed doing that and I always got a good positive response at the Abbey Festival when I had my bows on show and uh, doing the warbow display was really good. Uh, we got we got really good, um, really good feedback on that, and people thought it was impressive to see them. And so I wanted to showcase that period. And then uh, the bows themselves, those bows, I find a lot of beauty in their construction and how they're made out of the single piece of wood that they're made from. And then I also find them really elegant to watch being shot, just because they're so simple. They're just a smooth, simple curve in a piece of timber and you can launch an arrow a really long way. So I find that um, pretty fascinating and and really nice. And then uh, going in from that, I've started getting into the glass fiberglass bows. A lot of the guys that have been on the Facebook page, have seen my emus and uh, that's a classic Howard Hill bow design, so. What were the bows used for? You just said that you were interested in back when they used to use them. Mm -hmm. What were they used for? So, before the English longbow really came became famous through the Hundred Years' War, the bows that we have prior to that are from the Viking period, sort of 800 through to um, 1000 uh, AD. So those bows are actually quite a bit shorter than what the English longbows are and what we've seen in the, the artifact finds. So those bows, we think, were not used so much for warfare and a lot more for putting food on the table. The shorter bows? Yeah, the shorter bows. They have a, sh- a shorter draw length. So they store a little bit less energy and makes them a little bit more manoeuvrable through the, the countryside. So we kind of think that they're primarily a hunting bow and only used for warfare when they're really necessary. Before this podcast, we were talking about the different types of longbows. What mm-hmm. is the Native American... What was the Native American warbow, uh, the longbow? Yep. What was that used for and how did that come about and what's the history behind that one? So the Native American bow, there's a few different versions of it. Some of them are longer, some of them are much shorter. It depends on the period, uh, the, the location, um, where the, the tribe was that was using the bow and the timber available. So um, <clears throat> Eastern Woodlands tribes, bows tend to be a little bit longer because they had access to longer, straighter trees. In the Southern Plains bows tend to be quite a bit shorter and generally sinew-backed as well because they didn't have access to trees growing in that really long, straight um, fashion so 
they kind of had to use what they had. Through all these time periods, are they all self-bows or were there laminates that, like you use hide glue for a lot of things? Yeah. Did they have laminates back then? There is examples of laminates through the Viking period where they had made two, uh, two composite two wood bows. So the ones that we've found are birch and compression pine and they're a whole other ball game uh, altogether. They're a really interesting construction, something I'm actually working towards perfecting myself. Um, so there is examples of laminated technology back that far and even earlier through uh, a few thousand years back the Egyptians were building composite bows as well and they were using wooden cores with horn and sinew as well what's a composite bow? a composite bow would be a bow that's built using more than one material so a sinew backed timber bow would be considered a composite bow Um, I personally don't consider the two wood bows to be a composite bow because they're both made of wood. There's no completely different material used in the construction. So I I would take either a composite bow as a sinew-backed bow, um, a sinew-backed horn-bellied bow, so the bows that you find through Asia, uh, primarily through Asia, uh, uh, composite horn bows, and then into modern fiberglass bows now are technically composite bows because they work with fiberglass and timber. There's so many other podcasts we That's have right. to come lots, back to. Lots of ideas, lots of things to cover, lots of history. Far out. Um, a few thousand years. So you've told us a little bit of the history of the longbows. Mm. What time periods were all of these longbows? Like what is what time period is the Hundred Year War and what time period is Hastings? What time period is the English longbow? You've told us about the Vikings. Yeah. And then the Native Americans. So... The Viking period is from about 700 through to 900, 950 AD. And then you move into the beginnings of the Hundred Years' War um, or the beginnings of the medieval period, so the Dark Ages and medieval period. The Hundred Years' War didn't start until, um, I believe, late 1300s, very, very late 1300s into the late 1400s. Um, I'll have to check dates on that exactly to be sure, but around that time frame. So... The Viking bows were used mainly to get food, um, or if you know, different Viking clans had issues with each other, then they would be used for battle. Once uh, big populations through France and in England as well uh, started to use fortifications a lot, or started to battle in bigger numbers, uh, or use armour, the advent of armour then changed what was required of the weapon itself. So they needed bigger arrows, stronger bows, and the that could shoot further so we have um, the Viking bows quite short and then moving into the medieval period we see the bows start to get longer and also heavier in the draw weight and because they needed to be heavier they wanted them to be heavier in the draw weight they needed to make them longer to make the bows last so I've just found the hundred years war it was 1337 to 1453 okay there you go and it was a series of conflicts through the late middle ages between Mm -hmm. the kingdoms of England and France Three famous ones would be Cressy, Poitiers, and Agincourt. They'd be the famous big battles that everybody that knows anything about the English Warbow or has read anything about the English Warbow would hear about. You would hear about those three. Um, pretty famous English victories, but you've told me some of the funny laws. Do mm. you, like, I was wondering if there are any more laws. There's that law that so, anyone over the age of yeah. twelve after church has to go on train for archery on a Sunday afternoon that's right by law in England through that medieval period it was 
Um, anyone above the age of, I think, 12 or 13 was, by law, had to go and practice after church on a Sunday morning. Um, so everybody would, or all the young men, the older men as well, would get together on, after a Sunday after church and they would shoot at the butts. And there's a lot of uh, tapestry scenes where you can see that style of shooting, that practice style of shooting is uh, it still through the law? artworks. Is it still a law? Um I believe it is technically still in the English Constitution and it also carried through into ours here in Australia when it was formed. Uh, I don't think that was ever taken out. So technically, we are probably still required by law to practice. I saw some some guy made a video. I watched this ages ago. And it was all of these laws that were in England and like just seem ridiculous now. Yeah, and that's he, right. like, there's, he, a, there's a few. He tried to break all of these laws without being caught and mm-hmm. he didn't get in any tra- trouble. But one of them was he wasn't allowed to carry a salmon suspiciously. And I just thought that was so funny because he was walking through London carrying a salmon suspiciously. It was really funny. Um, so those, those laws. But yeah, I yeah. find it really funny that by law we're technically still going to be training archery that's right. on a Sunday afternoon. And another one that, that's quite interesting that I don't know if many people know about, and I'm not sure if it's, it's hearsay or whether it was written down anywhere, but uh, common folk in, in England through the medieval period weren't allowed to use sharp arrowheads so steel arrowheads they had to use wooden blunts for battle not for battle oh, no, no, just for practice just for practice and to get their own food they weren't allowed to shoot sharps really? because you would be considered a poacher on the king's land trying to shoot bigger game if you were carrying sharps because they're not capable of taking big game animals with blunts so you could only take small game animals. yeah you're kind of limited to rabbits and squirrels and waterfowl oh wow i don't even yeah know. that's really so, interesting no sharps um, what is the process of making a longbow? Like, does it differ? Because you make the English longbows. I do. And you've made some Viking bows. I don't, have you made mm-hmm. a Native American bow? I have a Native American sinew back bow as well. Um, I, I pretty much make any kind of long bow, like Native American bows, Viking bows through Europe um, and Scandinavia as well. Um, so the basic process of making a longbow for me goes through four basic steps. I have getting the stave so somehow i'll get the stave that i'm going to use to build the bow and by the stave i mean either the raw the raw piece of wood or the laminates of timber or laminates of timber and glass that i'm going to use to make the bow itself and you know those laminations will be glued together and that's what i class as a stave so first thing is getting that stave or a self bow yeah so for a self bow i would get uh, a, a timber stave that's been split from a log out of the out of a tree i'd go and find a tree cut that tree down, bring it back to my workshop and split it once it's been split, usually in half, sometimes into quarters, depending on how big the log is. Uh, After that, it'll stay and season. Um, By season, I mean dry and then acclimatise to the humidity. And that usually takes 18 months to two years, depending on what the wood is. Um, Usually, it takes about two years to get the moisture content down to what I can use to work at about 12%. So after it's seasoned, then I'll pull it out and start working on the stave and that comes into the second step of the process and that's rough shaping so when I rough shape a bow I'll mark out the profile of the bow that I want to build if it's an English longbow I'll use a shape indicative of an English longbow if it's an American flatbow I'll use a shape the shape of an American flatbow and then that's marked onto the back of the bow and then I'll using two different tools for um, the different bows I'll go through and 
rough out that shape before I can start doing any of the bending of the timber itself. Um, after I've got through the rough shaping, then I'll tiller the bow and the tillering process is basically how I get the bow to bend evenly to bend far enough into the draw length that the customer or, customer or myself might want and then also to be at the draw weight that the customer or myself want to get the bow to be. So if someone came and ordered a bow that was 40 pounds at 28 inches, I'd have to do the tillering process to match 40 pounds at 28 inches when the bow was finished. You said that the ideal timber through England and Scandinavia was yew. We yeah, talked, yeah, we talked about that in the first podcast. Yeah, so yew wood was used very commonly through England and through England and Scandinavia, and all through Europe, uh, through the Middle Ages especially, and in the Viking period as well, because it's such a really a natural, a good natural spring. What timbers do you use for the longbows now? Longbows now, if I'm making self bows, I'll either use. Say if I'm making an English style longbow or a warbow, I will still use yew trees. So I order yew trees uh, or yew staves from Canada. I get a good uh, supplier there that I can get yew staves from, and I'll have them shipped over. Leave them sit for a month or so to get used to our humidity, and then I'll start work on the bow. If I'm making an American flat bow style bow, uh, either a self bow or a laminated bow, I tend to stick with American timbers. But I can use some Australian ones as well. We do have some very good Australian wood here that makes very nice bows. Um, so I'll, I'll get, a, get a stave of something like Osage or Hickory that I can use. Or if I was here and I, someone ordered an Australian wood bow, I'd be looking at something like Ironbark or Spotted Gum or Soapwood are really good ones. And there's lots of other different ones as well. So my plan is actually to do a YouTube series where I'll either go out into the bush and I'll harvest a tree and make a self bow out of Australian timber or I'll go to Bunnings and buy the, necess uh, the necessary stuff to build a very basic beginners like starter bow um, so that people can see where to go to get things and how to go about making a, or making their first bow. You may as well practice on some Bunnings timber rather than trying to... <laughs> yeah, that's in, right. You go and import a stay from Canada and bugger it up. Yeah, definitely. It's best to start off with really simple shapes early, so bend through the handle bows or, or circular arc bows, and um, you know I'll go through on the YouTube series uh, how to plan those out and how to lay them out on on a stave and actually go through the process of making one. You need to refine your technique a bit more. Yeah, definitely. What's the YouTube series that you want to do? So the YouTube series will basically be I'll go out either to the bush and cut a stave, or I'll go to Bunnings and I'll buy all the pieces that I need and then I'll go through completely fashioning a bow from start to finish and I'll do it slowly so people can see measurements. I'll give measurements for the bow that I'm building and I'll build something that's around the kind of draw weight that a beginner would want so that you can use exact measurements if you want to do the same build uh, and you'll probably get quite close. It's more for the beginner. You're, n you're not going to Bunnings to get all your timber for all your customers' orders. No, I don't need to go to Bunnings to get timber for my customers orders but if somebody wanted those particular woods i could get them there <laughs> fair enough fair enough um you were doing a longbow workshop with the school i do yes just done that for a third year now mm -hmm. would be you didn't do it last year so it's not three years in a row not three years in a row but yeah third third time that we could do it we've we've done that one so i had perry jackson come with me perry taught me how to make bows 
oh, he's been helping me learn how to make bows and we sort of teach each other things now. I think uh, he would say the, the students become the master, but I wouldn't. Um, but yeah, we, we go to the Steiner School in Sanford and we do a bow making course where we teach grade 11 hard shop students uh, the process of how to make a very simple uh, laminated English longbow. How far did I get with it in the two days? Uh, over the two days, I don't believe in the three years we've had anybody not finish a bow to shooting. So but that's you. You glue the staves up. You, yeah, you I'll, the I'll glue the staves up. You glue. You get the timber, you glue the staves up, and then you take the pretty much ready to just start on for those kids. Yeah, that's right. So it saves them machining out laminations, which is pretty boring and pretty simple, um, and then gluing up a bow itself. I do show them... Uh, when we do the workshop during a little break how to glue up a stave or how all of their staves were glued up I do go through that process with them so they do get to see it but it's not really something that they need to do to be able to learn how to make the bow itself basically getting the stave is the easy part awesome thank you (laughs) (laughs) that's all right you've just started getting into doing a lot of fiberglass bows do you use fiberglass on any of the longbows now I do. I do use fiberglass in the longbows. So the fiberglass longbows started in, I would say, probably the 40s or 50s, around that period. And they were made famous by Howard Hill. So Howard Hill came up. He was one of the first uh, manufacturers of a simple uh, longbow-style bow that's similar to a Victorian period target bow that was marketed for American hunters and sport shooting. So uh, he came up with using fiberglass in his design and that's basically the same design that I use in my EMU model. Um, It's very much a Howard Hill style bow and I use fiberglass laminations on the back and the belly of those bows to give them the power that they have. How do you make a string? Is that something that you can describe over the podcast or is that something that you've put on the YouTube channel and people are just best to go watch? Um, I can go through a a little bit on the podcast but... It's definitely something that you need to do in your hands as well to learn how to do. Um, So string making is one of those things that you very much learn it with your fingers. But it's a process of twisting and then reverse crossing strands of bowstring so that when the tension of stringing the bow is put on them, they bite into each other and can't come apart. That's how you would make a Flemish twist string. But I've got a video there that I'll upload and I'll, I can make a really good YouTube video of it um, for people that do want to learn how to make strings specifically. I found it really interesting when we first met because I, I liked archery mm-hmm. when we did it at school and my dad had plans to enroll me at this archery club that we were actually talking about today with Perry. Mm, that's right. And I find that super funny because it's like not many people were into it and then I met you and you were right <laughs> into it. Anyway... But I found it really interesting because I always thought that the bow, like how a bow looks strung, I just thought that's how they always were. Mm. So I always found it really funny when you're like, oh, these are my bows. And they're like a stick. And yeah, I'm like, that's how right. are you meant to shoot with this straight stick? And I thought <clears> it was like absolutely mind-blowing when I watched you string a bow. And I found it really interesting how with some of them, like we just press it against our foot and you can string it, mm-hmm. or you need a stringer. Can you explain why someone needs a stringer versus just putting the string on lots of different reasons to go through stringing and uh, like how to string a bow and there's lots of different methods that people use from different places around the world Um, so to string a longbow itself there's basically three different methods that you can use to string a longbow there's the push pull method which is the one that I 
tend to use on all my personal bows, but I don't recommend people use it um, on bows that they've bought because I always provide bowstringers when I sell my bows um, and bowstringers are a little bit safer. So the push-pull method is essentially jamming the bottom tip of the bow into one of your feet, the, the, the arch of your foot, holding the handle of the bow with your dominant hand and then as you push with your off hand to slide the string into the top knock, you pull onto the handle of the bow uh, to get it to bend into the shape that it needs to be at brace. So that's called the push-pull method. And there's lots of videos on YouTube of people doing uh, push-pull method, but I'll make a quick video and upload it of these three different styles. So push-pull method's one. The step-through method is another one that was quite common, um, more so in the uh, sort of earlier on in fiberglass bows. Everybody uses step-through method because fiberglass is pretty hard to break. Um, and the step-through method is basically uh, you would put the bottom limb of the bow across the outside of your foot say your right foot if you're right-handed you put the the bottom limb across the outside of your right foot step through the string between the string and the bow and have the bow on the back side of your left uh, thigh and then you would bend the bow using your left hand and slide the string up uh, onto the top knock with your right hand so that's another way of doing it i don't think i've ever seen you do that no i don't tend to do that one very often because it's uh, it overstresses the bottom limb a little bit when you're actually stringing the bow and can damage them, especially in wooden bows. I definitely don't advise doing the step-through method in wooden bows, even though it was probably used for a long time back in the day. So, And then for your bigger... like, Because you have these massive bows, like yeah, your 150-pound ones, yeah. when you've got the stringer and then I'm, you're like, I'm, you need two people to help you string it. Yeah, some of my, my heavy bows are... Uh, basically like lifting a small person uh, or a medium sized person even just to get the string on them so I definitely use stringers and sometimes it takes two people to get a string on uh, so the bow stringers is basically you have a second knock cut into the top limb of the bow and a second longer string is used uh, the bottom loop of the stringer just sits against the string in the groove on the bow and then the top uh, loop of the stringer goes in that secondary knock and you would string the bow by standing on the string and pulling it up at your waist and then you can use one hand to put the string in I always thought it was really funny at the Abbey Medieval Festival like whenever you've had your bows on display when we went to, even like to the Petrie Market mm -hmm. and you've got your bows on display and they, they're like the straight sticks and I was like oh my god no one's going to know it's a bow <laughs> but it turns out I was the only one that didn't know that's how you string a bow mm -hmm. I always thought they just stayed there. <coughs> For anyone that has bought a longbow from you or plans mm -hmm. to buy a longbow from you or someone else, what is the care advice you would give them? Care advice? Um, there's basically two parts of the bow. There's the bow itself and there's the string. So uh, for the string itself, it's quite simple. Basically, beeswax once a month or thereabouts or if the string starts to feel dry and if it starts to feel dry, it'll start to change from... If it's a black string, it'll start to look a little bit grey. Uh, it won't be black so much, and that means it just needs to be waxed because it's starting to dry out and it might start to fray a little bit. For the bow itself, if it's a self-bow or a wooden laminated bow or even a modern fiberglass bow, it's best practice not to keep them strung when they're not being used, especially for wooden bows because wood will get used to being bent and stay bent if it's left that way for a long time. Does that mean you won't have tension in it? Yeah, it'll lose some of its power. So it's 
It's actually called uh, stress relaxation. So when you put a bow under pressure by stringing it and it stays there, it sits there, the, the timber actually relaxes so it'll lose its elasticity and it'll want to stay in that bent shape. Okay. So tend to try and tell people to keep their bows unstrung when they're not using them. Fiberglass bows you can get away with a little bit more because the fiberglass is a lot more elastic. But you wouldn't advise it. But I wouldn't advise it. You keep your bows a lot more thumpy if, if you do unstring them. And it's not hard to string a bow with a stringer, so... And you said in the last video that in the last podcast um, that when you do like the gloss finish, they don't really need to maintain it, but your yeah. actors need to rub like beeswax over there. Yeah, guys that get natural finishes on their bows, and it's generally reenactment guys that want to keep things really period correct. They'll get beeswax or oil finishes. They'll have to maintain those finishes. For the guys that get modern stuff or want modern polyurethane finishes on their bows, they don't really need any maintenance. So you can kind of this one coat or one finishing process and then it's it's sort of just try not to scratch it as much as you can but i do a lot of coats on my bows in the finishing so it it's pretty hard wearing stuff so even out hunting out in the bush walking around it's it's okay to put them down on the on the on the ground if you have to yeah i always do <laughs> um and don't leave them in hot cars probably that's right hot cars is, hot cars is probably the worst one especially in australia yeah definitely particularly uh, up <laughs> either up here in Queensland where it's really hot and humid and probably more so down in South Australia where it's really hot and dry. There's probably a lot of other countries where you might get away with it but still don't recommend. Yeah, no, definitely don't leave them in a hot car. What are you working on at the moment? So at the moment I've been working through some commission orders. I've got um, an English longbow that's uh, going over to the US. Was that the one that you sent this morning? No, the one I sent this morning was one going to uh, some guys down in Victoria. They're a horse archery club, so that was a Turkish bow that I sent down this morning. That got shipped off. They should get it in a couple of days. Um, the English longbow is going over to the States for a reenactor over there. He does the uh, reenactment scene in the US, and he wanted an English longbow made, so I've been working on that. I've got uh, some custom emus that have gone. One's gone out the door earlier this week. One's going out the door tomorrow. So that'll be heading off and it'll be used in a, a comp shoot up here in Queensland in a couple of weeks' time. So that's pretty exciting. Where did the one at the start of the week go and where's the one that's going tomorrow going? One at the start of the week went down to Canberra. Mm -hmm. So I've got one down the ACT now. And the one that's going out tomorrow is going up to a guy in Condamine. Where's Condamine? So up north of Mullaney in Queensland. Oh, that's right. Yep. Is it funny? Do you have one in every state in Australia now? Um, no, I don't have one in the Northern Territory. Tasmania? I have one in Tassie. Uh, I've got one in WA. I've got one, I've got lots in Queensland and New South Wales and Victoria. I've got one in Canberra now. You've got, got a couple a, in South Australia? I've got a couple in Canberra. I've got a couple in South Australia, but I don't have one in the Northern Territory yet. I do have a guy very interested in one though. I find it really funny that you're selling them overseas before you've even like sold them. Yeah, I haven't sold them all. In most of the backyard. I haven't sold them all here, but I've got them in a few different countries overseas. So Very interesting. That's good. Very interesting. Alrighty. Well, let's wrap it up for today. Yeah, definitely. We'll come back next week. Not a worry. Hope everybody's well and cheers for listening. Thanks, guys. Bye. Ta. Bye.